0: chapter 19 today if you want to turn there Matthew chapter 19 and as you're turning there I'll just relay kind of a fun fact about uh, marriage and marriage in June and why June became the most favorable month to get married Um, all roads lead to Rome right and uh, I watch a lot of biblical history and archaeology videos all the time And I was reminded of how some of our months are named after Roman gods. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, But uh, July, named after Julius Caesar. August, after Caesar Augustus. Uh, March, after Mars, like November, December, October, September. Those months are uh, named after uh, Roman numbers. But uh, some of them are named after gods. And June is named after Juno. And Juno was the, was the wife of Jupiter or Zeus. So uh, Jupiter would be the Roman version. He's kind of like, he's the Roman version of Zeus. If you know who Zeus is, Zeus was the, the Greek version. Basically, when Rome took over, uh, <clears throat> they basically adopted the Greek gods and just gave them different names. And so anyway, Juno is the, the wife of Jupiter she was the goddess of marriage and children, and because of that, June became the most favorable time to get married. Isn't that interesting? Um, today, I don't think any... <laughs> most people don't even get that, right? I mean, why do we marry in June today? Oh, probably because of the nice weather, right? But uh, anyway, with that, and with Pride Month, and then Roe v. Wade being overturned, I thought, man, how, how timely to do a, a study on, on marriage, right in the middle of June, and in the middle of Pride Month. I did not plan that, but I thought that was pretty neat. Um, I'm going to digress. Uh, so far in our, our marriage uh, series, we've looked at how marriage is a, a great foundation for the family and the rest of society. And and that's why it's under attack. Uh, culture affects marriage, marriage affects the culture. Last week, uh, we went and went ahead and then placed our first building block that we called the canvas we're we're taking several building blocks and we're going to put them together to try and, and and form a strong home family marital bond so uh our first building block was called the canvas and we basically discussed how marriage paints a picture of the relational nature of god and his 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 covenant relationship with his people between christ and the church. Basically, our marriages paint a gospel picture for the world. And uh, that was a really neat sermon. If, if you missed it, go ahead and catch it online or on our podcast. Um, last week, someone told me how their marriage is no uh, Mona Lisa after they heard the sermon. If, if our marriage is painting a picture for the world, my marriage is no Mona Lisa, right? It's got smudges and mis- mistakes. And I thought, well, that's great because, you know, none of our marriages are perfect, right? Um, and how comforting to know even Picasso was considered a great artist. So um, that's supposed to be a joke. But today, I'm just going to move on. Today, we're going to lay our second building block, and this is um, the Covenant, building block number one, the canvas, building block number two, the Covenant. And before we begin, again, I just want to remind you that the reason we're doing this study is, is not to bring up some ghost from the past. It isn't to cause shame or guilt because we're going to talk a lot about broken marriage today. And uh, that's the desire in this study is not to bring all that past heartache up. It's to prevent heartache in our relationships that we have right now. And it's to bring healing and direction to our relationships now and in the future. And besides that, our relationships <clears throat> all need constant maintenance. They just need constant upkeep. If you've experienced a broken marriage and you're here today, please don't sense that you are irrevocably out of God's will for your life. You know, like, I'm, I'll, just, you know, I'll just never be in God's will for my life. There's going to be consequences for that, but he is a forgiver and, and he is a restorer. I mean, there was some serious consequences uh, for, for, like, immorality and adultery in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant with Israel. I mean, it was like, it was life and death stuff. But even David, under the Old Covenant, broke that, didn't he? And what did Nathan the prophet say to him? You surely will not die, and God has forgiven you from all your sin. So keep that in mind. God's a forgiver. He's a restorer. And he remembers that we're dust. I like what Gary Thomas said in his book, Sacred Marriage. He says, if you've gone through a divorce, you serve no one, least of all God, by becoming fixated on something that you can't now undo. Right? So keep moving forward in God's grace. Confess it, yeah, but receive his cleansing and forgiveness and then move on. Right? Now, understanding the covenant nature of marriage is uh, critical to its endurance. The covenant is a rock <clears throat> that keeps us from being washed away, our marriages from being washed away when the storms hit. And the storms will hit. And you are gonna have to fight for your marriage. And you are gonna, you're gonna have to, you're gonna struggle with it. There's gonna be days where, where you're gonna want to quit. But we need to understand that the marriage is based on firm rock that we call the covenant. The covenant. If we don't understand the covenant nature of marriage, we're going to inevitably redefine marriage. And we're going to redefine it as a contract or a conditional agreement or some other temporary thing uh, rather than a covenant. Uh, there was a jewelry store in Hollywood who did just that. They, they uh, <clears throat> had a sign... In their front window, this jewelry store that said, we rent wedding rings. (laughs) What a a sign, huh? We rent wedding rings. Well, that's really hard to say now that I say it. But uh, when we do marriage our way instead of God's way, it's not going to be until death do us part, but more likely it's going to be until debt or disagreement or disinterest or drift do us part. So instead of a covenant, marriage becomes a disposable contract, as it had in Jesus' day. And that's where we're going to start, is in Matthew 19, 1-12, with Jesus' instruction on marriage. And that's the first heading in your outline, if you're taking notes. Uh, Marriage marriage was a wreck in Jesus' day, too, so there's nothing new under the sun here. Uh, Let's go ahead and read that. When Jesus had finished these words... He left Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined To his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a divorce, a certificate of divorce, and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by people, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this, let him accept it. All right, so uh, Jesus' instruction on marriage here. The first thing he does uh, when he's questioned about marriage and divorce is he reminds them of what we've learned already, right? That marriage is God's idea. God designed marriage from the beginning all the way back in the book of Genesis. I mean, God had in mind His picture uh, between Him and His people, Christ and the church, before marriage even came to be. And marriage was designed to reflect all that. It wasn't like God said, oh, look at what these people are doing on earth, you know, peering down from heaven. Oh, they're getting married. And they're doing this weird covenant thing, and it's male and female. And that's a good illustration of what my relationship's like with my people. No, God designed it, and then He He He's the one who made Adam see his need to get married. So if we talked all about that um last week, <clears throat> right? And where do you if God designed it, um He's the one. That we should look to to understand how it should operate, right? Whenever you buy anything and you want to know, well, how should this thing operate? How does it work? You go to the owner's manual because the the person who designed that wrote the under, owner's manual. Well, God is has the owner's manual for marriage, and so we look to His instruction to see how it should operate properly. And uh, you can probably sense just through a you know cursory reading of what we just did real quick here that uh, there. That with, between their interaction with Jesus, you can see how unpopular God's design is in Jesus' day. I mean, they, they don't like God's design, just like today, our culture today. These Pharisees are, who are asking this question, they had come up with their, in, their own wife-swapping scheme. I mean, they had, they had loopholes all around the law in order to do their wife-swapping scheme. And uh, what they're doing right here is they're uh, asking this question with the intention of discrediting Jesus in, in the eyes of the crowds that are following him. Because the Pharisees know uh, <clears throat> that these people prefer to do marriage their way rather than God's way. And so they know where Jesus is at on the subject of marriage and divorce, and so they're going to use Jesus's. Uh, instruction on it to discredit him in the eyes of the crowd who are following him because they don't want anybody following Jesus anymore. But also think about this. Jesus is in Perea, beyond the Jordan. So he's in an area that is ruled by Herod, Antipas, and Herodias. And Herod, (coughs) Herodias, instigated this uh, beheading of John the Baptizer because John had called them out on their adulterous marriage. And so because they know where Jesus is at on marriage, they're going to hope that Jesus loses his head too because he's in the same territory. And it's an incredibly evil agenda that they have against Jesus when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. But uh, Pharisees, they thought of divorce as something that was inconsequential and easy. And during this time, there was a leading teacher in the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was just the priestly council, basically. It's kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel in Jesus's day and and this teacher in the Sanhedrin his name was Hillel and Hillel taught that you could divorce your wife for any trivial reason including burning dinner or having an unpleasant attitude uh, making a negative comment about her in-laws um, or if the man just found someone else that he liked better right any of your wives ever burned dinner right ever overseasoned the food that was another one, right? Some covenant teaching, huh? That was, sheesh, uh, marriages wouldn't last two weeks under that sort of teaching. I mean, when De- so they, what they did is they would look to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. We're not going to turn there today for the sake of time, but uh, Deuteronomy 24 said a man could divorce his wife if he found some sort of uncleanness or indecency in her, and uh, Hillel took a liberal definition of that, and to basically say that it could refer to any trivial matter that we just talked about. Uh, he's basically just trying to get God's law to fit his own idea. And uh, there was a, a more conservative scholar, though I guess school of interpretation, taught by another leading rabbi named Shammai, who taught that the term uncleanness <clears throat> or indecency referred to immorality. It referred to adultery. And so Jesus clearly lines up with Shammai's more narrow view on this. And the Pharisees, knowing this, are trying to make Jesus' stringent teaching on divorce unsavory to the people who are following him, unsavory to a culture which had normalized divorce and covenants were basically pointless anymore. And so as always and like Jesus, we've got to care more about what God says than what men say on any given subject, and then we do our best to line up our lives and our teaching with His Word, right? And uh, that's what Jesus does here. He doesn't let the culture pressure Him. He doesn't let the, you know, the, oh no, people are going to leave if I teach this. I mean, He just, He's not a man pleaser. He doesn't care. He just preaches God's Word. And uh, we've got to be more like that. He he's, he just takes him right back to Genesis, stating that Marriage is designed to be a lifelong, monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. He says it's a lifetime commitment. That's what you're getting into. When you sign up to get married, you're signing up for a lifetime commitment. That's the design. And I should say that even though it's lifelong, it's not eternal, right? Uh, Every now and then you run into a a young couple or something that doesn't understand that. Uh, uh, It's lifelong, it's not eternal. It's until death. Do us part, uh, Jesus said in the resurrection we don 't marry we 're not given in marriage we 're like angels in the sense that for all of eternity we 're going to be single. Um, the only marriage in heaven is the the church's marriage to Christ. he is our husband, and uh, again that 's what marriage in this life pictures, but in this life married a married couple becomes one flesh, Jesus says, and they 're going to share their lives together and so this is the one place where where math kind of just breaks the rules, so it's it's one plus or one plus one equals one basically, and so now if there's just one spouse, it's only half of one, you know. So um, the two become one as God, through a divine act, joins them together, and He consecrates that union between the man and the woman for life, and divorce, he says, was never part of the plan in the beginning, and that might surprise us, because Jesus' teaching on this is very stringent, right? This is pretty narrow stuff in a culture that says, well, I can just divorce for any reason, whatever, you know, uh, biblically, that, oh man, that biblical teaching is kind of a shock, even the disciples were shocked, and they say, "If this, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry." Like, whoa, right? <laughs> and Jesus basically says, "You're right. You're right. Not everybody can accept that." And he goes on to talk about how, uh, just like we need God's grace to fulfill our marriage vows and stay pure and, and stick it out and endure, uh, so does the single person. He needs grace to live single for god and to stay pure in that situation as well i mean maybe you're maybe you're single here today and you think i should, you know it's just it'd be so much easier to stay pure if you were married well i i've been married for a while now and i gotta say i need god's grace too you know all of you married people would say the same thing right i mean whether you're single or married you need god's grace to stay pure to god he says there's congenital eunuchs who were born that way. There's cultural eunuchs uh, uh, who, who, like in Jesus' day, they they might have guarded a king's harem of women. A king sometimes had many women, and, and, a, and a eunuch would take care of them. Kind of like in Acts chapter 8, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, right? And uh, anyway, he would be castrated, basically, so that he didn't cause any problems in the kingdom. And then there was... Uh, Jesus says there's a, there's a Christian eunuch who, by God's gift of singleness, lives as a eunuch so that they can fully devote themselves to the work of God. Um, Paul talks about this gift of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, and how whether we're married or we're single, we've got to rely on God's grace to stay pure and to war against the sin nature. And uh, I'll just say this, if you're you're debating whether to marry or not. Um, you should be prayerfully studying these passages and just asking yourself questions like, um, do I deserve to, or do I desire to serve God's kingdom without distraction? You know, without the distractions of a, of a, of a family or a, or a spouse. Can I be... Uh, single without being bitter against God? Because there's a lot of people want to be single, but then they're kind of mad at God for their single condition. Um, can, I, can I be single without being constantly overwhelmed by temptation? If not, you may not have the gift of singleness. Paul said it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, because of immoralities, Paul said each should have his own wife and each wife her own husband. And Again, all of this is in 1 Corinthians 7. You might ask yourself, if you're, you're single, do I desire a lifelong partner? Do I desire to have a family? These are questions, by the way, I was asking nine years ago. And uh, so I'm relaying them to you. Do I desire to have a family? Am I willing to give up living for myself and live for my spouse until death do us part? need to really pray about that. If you're a single here today considering marriage, consider The challenge that marriage is before you get married. I think sometimes we don't think about the vows that are actually coming out of our mouths. I mean, this is for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, until death do us part. This is a lifelong commitment. Are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to accept that? Marriage is good, but Paul said it's also good not to marry too, because singleness has its advantages too. And uh, You just have to read through these scriptures and pray about it and there was one day where i said you know what i just want to get married marriage is good singleness is good but i feel like i want to get married i want a family and there's nothing wrong with that and i can serve god in that capacity too and uh honestly a family makes me more christ-like than i'd ever dreamed (laughs) um you might not be able to tell just kidding but um Marriage and, and being a, a parent will just draw things out of you that you did not even know were in you, <laughs> right? Uh, how selfish we are. Um, the only reason why divorce was allowed, Jesus says, is because of sin. He says it's because of the hardness of your heart. Uh, so when the Pharisees asked, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce, Jesus corrects them. He says it's because of the hardness of your heart that Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it wasn't this way. And so you notice two different, two very different words that Jesus is using there, right? One is command, and then one is permit. The Pharisees are saying that Moses commanded them to give a certificate of divorce. And Jesus is like, no, he did not command you, he permitted you because sin entered the picture and distorted God's design. And so he's he's basically saying, because of sin, God made a narrow concession, allowing for divorce in Such a circumstance as adultery. And the Pharisees, again, they wanted to widen that reason for divorce to just about anything, right? Your wife oversalts the food, uh, good grief, right? Um, She lets her hair down or exposes her ankles, oh dear, right? Uh, (laughs) That's what was going on in their day. Uh, Jesus is narrowing it back down to adultery. And uh, divorces never, I think this tells us divorce is never to be looked at as an easy out. You never look for a reason to divorce. It's a, it's, a, it's a last option, not a first option. You never go into marriage thinking, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll just file for a divorce. That's contract thinking, not covenant thinking. Okay? Divorce is the final option that is permitted or allowed under certain circumstances, and it's never a first option. And just because there is uh, some sort of, maybe you've you've gone through something in your marriage that that, that permits, allows for divorce, biblically, that doesn't always mean that one should. Doesn't always mean that one should. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But my wife and I, we don't even consider it an option. This is just uh, something that was passed down to us that I wanted to pass down to you. I pass it down to all the couples I marry. Um, Never use the D word. Just never use it. Don't use the D word and I don't mean Dallas, if you're familiar with the country song. Going through the big D and don't mean Dallas. Never understood that until I got older. Um, I really wasn't listening to the lyrics, apparently. But divorce is a word that I don't even like to use and painfully have to use today to discuss the biblical doctrine on divorce and marriage and remarriage and the advice passed down to me uh, was don't even use this word don't even consider this word part of your vocabulary uh, don't even it's not even an option it's not on the table and as soon as this this word enters into your relationship as soon as this word comes up you lose your freedom and security in the marriage This word becomes a tool of manipulation and a power play. And it gets ugly really quick and it becomes a constant threat to that relationship. My advice, don't use the D word. Just get rid of it. The only clear allowance for it that is in Scripture is due to, uh, number one, immorality and number two, abandonment. Um, Jesus said in verse 9, he used the word immorality. I take that as a general sense to refer to various sinful uh, sexual immoralities like adultery. And then Paul also mentions abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. So let's say two people are unbelievers, one gets saved, the unbeliever just doesn't want anything to do with it and just doesn't want to be a part of this relationship anymore for whatever reason. And 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16 says if they insist on leaving Don't prolong it. Don't prolong it because you're called to peace and not bondage. That's Paul's advice. But uh, people are going to say, this is the typical thing, well, what about abuse? What about abuse? And uh, when it comes to abuse, I really don't like to, uh, we could spend a whole sermon talking about it. I don't like to presume upon the word of God and hypothetical situations, but in my personal opinion, I'm not saying this with any sort of authority from the Word of God, in my opinion, um, I consider abuse to be a form of abandonment. It's about abandonment in just about every way, isn't it? Emotionally, physically. Um, I just don't think God would have the spouse remain in that situation, um, at least until there is some sort of repentance and help sought Okay, I think the only way that relationship should continue is through genuine repentance of the abuser, and then careful, prayerful guidance from the Lord over an extended period of time. You know what I'm talking about? Um, in the art of marriage study that is at our house, apparently I forgot to turn my phone off. So, um, in the art of marriage study at our house, there are couples who share their testimony about how God helped them work through all of these situations. I mean, they, they went through adultery. They went through abuse, and God restored them. I mean, if he can raise a, Jesus from the dead, he can raise a marriage too, amen? And uh, just so if you want more on that subject, on marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness, I put a helpful sermon in the end notes. Um, it is by John MacArthur, and uh, you can find it there but to find it online. I think it's really helpful. Um, But uh, please hear me when I say that even in some cases where there is something like adultery that does take place, it doesn't mean we look at it as like a first option, like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. You know, you should never go into marriage like that. No one goes into marriage thinking, I can't wait to get divorced one day. No, we want that lifelong partner. And and, uh, opportunity. Uh, I guess situations like that are an opportunity to see God work to restore that marriage and um it to me it's there's nothing there's nothing more powerful there's no greater gospel picture to the world than a couple who can go through something so ugly like that and then Stick with it because they've demonstrated mercy and grace and love and forgiveness to their partner, you know? Isn't that what God does with us every single day? Are we not all adulterers to our husband? We all go astray. We, we're all adulterers. And yet, God knew we would when he married us in Christ. You know what I'm saying? He knew we would go astray and he still married us. And uh it's just so powerful when a marriage goes through something that gives allowance for divorce and they don't. It's, it's the most powerful gospel picture ever painted. And uh, it's, like I said, marriage is going to make you grow in Christ's likeness more than anything I know of in this world. And uh, I think I'm kind of weepy this morning because I'm sick and because uh, uh, relationships are just so stinking important, guys. They're so important. Marriage is not just here to make us um, happy. That's an important part of it, right? We've talked about that, but marriage is there to make us holy, to make us more Christ-like. And no matter what your exact position is on divorce, we all know how God feels about it. So let's let's look at that. Um, Malachi chapter two, verses thirteen through sixteen. Just actually turn back one book from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi chapter two verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read from the NLT, actually, just for clarity this morning. Um, Here is another thing you do. This is is talking, the Lord's talking to the men of Israel and specifically the priests. He says, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because He pays no attention to your offerings and He doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, Why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? Well, I'll tell you why, because the Lord has witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her, though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his, and what does he want? Godly seed from your union, children from your union, so guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Uh, the Nazbi says to deal treacherously with her, says the Lord of heaven's armies. What a, what a name to use right there. Says the Lord of heaven's armies. It's a battle name. So guard your heart do not be unfaithful to your wife. So second heading we see is God's attitude towards divorce, and it's, it's hate. He hates divorce. There's no such thing as a good divorce in his eyes. Yeah, some, some reasons for divorce may be less evil than others, but there's no such thing as a, God, a good divorce because they're all a failure of God's design. And just a little context here, men in Israel, and especially the leading priests who were supposed to be a good example to, to the nation of Israel, they were guilty of divorcing their Jewish wives and then marrying pagan Gentile wives. And so uh, they had set a poor example for the rest of the people, and God was just calling them to repent. He says, I'm not going to accept your worship until you repent. And he also unmistakably gives his opinion there. He hates it. Um, Marriage was designed to, and here's a couple of reasons why he hates it. Number one, marriage was designed to sanctify us. To make us more like Christ, more loving, more faithful, more forgiving. But divorce stops that cold. It stops that sanctification process cold. And then he also hates it because of the effect you can see that it has on not only us, but also on on those around us. He says he he was seeking godly seed, which meant, I think, and there's a lot of dispute over that verse and how to translate it. But uh, the seed you got to think about their children, right? <clears throat> God was seeking godly seed, godly children, a godly nation of Israel that was set apart. Well, by divorcing and marrying pagan wives, they were bringing all of that. Uh, uh, just It was heaping upon the nation of Israel, societal ill after ill after ill after ill, and that's why they had so many problems. Kind of like we talked about in our first uh, sermon on this subject. Divorce is never a private matter. It's never a private matter. It it upsets our relationships with our children. It, it messes up our children. It messes up family and friends and work and you name it, right? It has a ripple effect. And to keep this from happening, God gets pretty pretty real here, isn't he? He gets pretty serious. He says, guard your hearts so that you remain faithful to your wife. Um, war against sin in your heart. The, the lustful pleasures that, that rise up in you. You've got to You've got to do something with those. You've got to kill them. You've got to stay close to God. You've got to stay in His Word and walk by the Spirit. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things he says is you've got to remember your vows. Remember your vows. Remember your covenant. Marriage is a, a covenant, not a contract. So in that, that book back there, by the way, if you haven't picked one up, there's a free book back there for you called Marriage That Works. And in that book, Chip Ingram writes, the typical marriage contract says something like this, I'm absolutely committed to you no matter what until I'm no longer fulfilled or the relationship just gets too hard for us to continue with. You meet my needs, I'll meet yours. I'll stay in love with you as long as you're responding in ways that make sense to me and make me feel loved. When you've ceased to fulfill me or meet the needs that I perceive you ought to, then by my definition of good, I have the right to tell you we have, uh, we're falling out of love. And I can't bear to think of being this unhappy the rest of my own life. And Chip says that's an agreement, but it's a very conditional one. It's something that's disposable. That's the typical marriage contract. On, co- on the contrary, a covenant is a binding promise it's a binding promise between two parties and no matter what kind of covenant is in the bible and covenant's kind of an archaic term isn't it we don't really understand what covenants are uh, these days Uh, we don't talk about them a lot we don't think about them a lot except at weddings but in the in the bible a covenant is always a serious matter it has a touch of solemnity to it seriousness a sense like that this is serious stuff and if I don't hold up uh, my end of the deal, like uh, this is gonna, this is gonna end in in death type of thing. Or, you know, I shouldn't make a vow hastily without really thinking about what I'm saying and what I'm doing here. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes five four through five, he has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So. We've gotta think standing before God in a in a in a marriage ceremony, we're standing before God and all these witnesses. That's serious business to God. And at the wedding ceremony, marriage ceremony, I always talk about, I always tell the couple, I mean, God is your chief witness on that day. There's witnesses out in the crowd, and that's important, they need to be there, but God is actually there in that moment, and that's the reason why the guys are sweating, right, and trembling, (laughs) and I am too sometimes, because I'm thinking this is a serious thing that we're doing here. God is the chief witness. He's there. He's listening. He's watching. He is the one that as you recite your vows, God is joining that couple together in that moment. Serious business. And just to remind us of the solemnity of it, in the Bible, the nation of Israel, think about this. They have a Mosaic covenant with God. And their livelihood depends on whether or not they keep that covenant. I mean, it's blessing or cursing based on their response to, how, to the covenant that God has with Israel. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And uh, as was typical back then, Uh, In making a covenant, animals would be slaughtered and then they would be split in two. And then the parties making the covenant would walk through those split sacrifice, in essence saying, let this be done to me if I break this covenant. Let me be like these animals who have been split. Uh, The word covenant means to cut or to divide. And so uh, in this covenant with Abraham, normally both parties would have walked through that covenant, but God put Abraham, if you remember, in a sleepy daze, and he, so that Abraham wouldn't even try to walk through these sacrifices. I think that's what he was doing there. God was saying, I alone am responsible to keep this covenant with you, because if it depended upon Abraham, we probably wouldn't have a Savior today. <laughs> okay, So, God alone, unconditionally, unilaterally laterally said, I'm going to keep this covenant with you. And he did that. He kept, keeps his promises. Uh, but whatever type of covenant it is in the Bible, there's always a touch of solemn obligation. It's quite often sealed in blood, just like the, the new covenant, just like oh, uh, the wedding night between a virgin, virgins. Every covenant, guys, it has a sign and it has a symbol to remind each party of the responsibility that he or she brings to that covenant relationship. In the Old Testament, what was the sign? Circumcision? The New Testament, hallelujah, we're past that. It's baptism, right? Oh, praise God that we were born when we were. Um, as far as marriage is concerned, what's the, what's the sign or the symbol? The ring, right? Right? I'm glad I didn't forget mine this morning. Um, the ring. Every covenant has a sign or a symbol. I mean, biblically, um, you see. Honestly, you see nose rings in the Bible for, for covenant signs. Nose rings, signet rings, like which would be a stamp. Uh, you see various gifts exchanged. Like this is the sign of the covenant. Uh, they'll exchange an animal. I'll give. I'll give the the wife's dad an animal. But rings, especially on the left hand and fourth finger started to uh, develop. It seems like it was more of a cultural thing when you look into the history behind it. And it was just kind of adopted during the Roman era officially by the Catholic Church, and then it just became really popular. And apparently in their their scientific studies and dissecting cadavers, uh, dead bodies, right, they thought they'd found an artery that led from the ring finger up to the heart, directly to the heart, and so that's why they put the ring there. But... um, uh, science was wrong, <laughs> go figure, And uh, but anyway, it still lasts, I mean, it's still there, and uh, whatever the history of the wedding ring is, I like them, because for one, uh, they're symbolic of the never-ending love that uh, uh, Christ shows us, and we're to show to our spouses, and then Quite often, there'll be a diamond on there, and I like to think that the diamond uh, represents the rock that is Christ who holds that love together. So just kind of a neat comment on that. If you want the marriage to last, though, you need reminders of that covenant love. I think the, um, I think the ring does that. And uh, that's what's required for a marriage to last is, is covenant love. Love, sacrificial covenant love. I'm kind of behind on my slides here. But uh, it's very helpful to think of different kinds of love. Okay, there's brotherly love, there's romantic love, and there's sacrificial love. Hollywood emphasizes the the romantic love, the warm and fuzzy feelings. Uh, But sacrificial love is really the love that is required for marriage to last. Because the warm and fuzzy feelings, they're like this, aren't they? They're up and down. Sacrificial love is a steadfast, unconditional love. It's a love that doesn't have strings attached. It's a love that says, um, I'm not going to keep any record of wrongs. It's a love that says, I'm not going to seek my own. I'm actually going to live for you and your interests. This kind of love endures all things. It's unconditional. And I heard uh, my old pastor, Glenn Johnson from Alliance, say in a wedding ceremony recently, he said, the day you start making your spouse earn your love is the day that you're going to have problems. The day you start making people earn your love is the day that you're going to have problems. He also said this, archaeologists make the best spouses because the older something is, the more interested in it they are. Isn't that good? That was a good joke. But take that home with you, not the archaeology part, but the part about unconditional love. Marriages simply do not work when we place conditions on our love. And sometimes you're going to have to love your spouse, whether you want to or not, whether they deserve it or not, whether you feel like it or not, and you're going to have to act not on your feelings, but on the covenant itself. Did you catch that? That's a major point. You have to act, not on your feelings, your feelings of love, but on the sacrificial covenant love. You act on the covenant, not your feelings. It's kind of like a step of faith. One person wrote in a contract, two people make an agreement contingent on the performance of the other person. Right? I'll pay you $100 if you fix my carburetor. That's a contract both parties have a part to do. If you don't do your part, if you don't don't fix my carburetor, I'm not going to pay you and that contract is broken, right? There's conditions there. But a covenant, it's not like that. A covenant is a sacred promise. A covenant doesn't rest on what the other person does. It rests solely on my own faithfulness, just like God with Abraham. It rests upon God, not on Abraham. A covenant means I'm going to do this no matter what you do. I'm going to keep my promise no matter what you do. And Josh McDowell talks about three kinds of loves, three kinds of love. Two, he says there's I love you if, I love you because, and then I love you in spite of. He says the first two types of love are conditional. I love you if you lose weight. I love you because you're so smart or because of this or that. These are examples of contract love. But covenant love, the third one, says, I love you in spite of, or I love you despite. I love you although you don't always love me. And that's the only kind of love that lasts a lifetime. Conditional love isn't going to make it, because what if that partner doesn't lose weight, right? What if, that, what if that partner of yours loses their mind, literally, like they just, they lose their ability to think and operate and that's why we say in sickness and in health right I mean what if that that partner can't be the team that you always pictured marriage being right they just they they, they develop some sort of they have a disease they develop some sort of handicap state and they're totally dependent on you to take care of them there's no more marriage team anymore in sickness and in health are you still going to love them even though they can't love you back. But then lastly, covenant marriages offer security and fulfillment here. Every marriage, I think, should foster that romance love, obviously. You ought to go out on dates. Have any of you went on a date yet since we've started this series? Um, You should. I challenge you to go on a date with your spouse. Uh, That's a good love to foster, that romance love. But only the sacrificial Christ-like agape love is is what holds that together, holds that marriage together, and offers the, the freedom and fulfillment that we long for in our marriages. Covenants offer freedom, security, and fulfillment. So, in Swindoll's book, Strike the Original Match, he recounts the story of a man who divorced his wife. And in this guy, he goes off in total unrestraint after his, his marriage uh, broke up. And this guy, he, gets a, he, he lives the dream, basically, that Hollywood's preaching. He gets, a, he gets his own bachelor pad near the beach, and he's living it up with a different woman every day. And yet, at the same time, something was bothering him. His, I can't remember his name. It's George or something like that. But he says to his friend at work, he says, why am I so depressed? He's living the dream, right? He says, why do I feel a cold nothingness all the time? I know the guys here at work th- would think it would be fantastic to have this kind of liberate, liberated freedom. But honestly, I hate this life. Here's a man who has it made, right? He's attractive. He's got new women all the time. After pausing for a few seconds, he says, you know what I'd really like? I'd like to go home tonight, smell dinner cooking, hug my wife Hello. And spend the evening telling her and showing her how much I love her. And to go to sleep knowing that she'd be there in the morning. Isn't that great? Swindoll says, there it is, my friend. Straight scoop from an honest guy. Intimacy, fulfilling, enjoyable, meaningful intimacy must emerge from the God-ordained context of commitment and acceptance and marital harmony. And uh, my challenge to you guys this week uh, just comes from that Passage in Malachi. Remember your covenant. Remember your covenant and reaffirm your vows to your spouse. Let your spouse know that you're still standing by your word. What word to have and to hold from this day forward. For better and for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health. To honor and to cherish until death separates us. You guys, since you've married, uh, for many of you, some of you guys were married last night or two weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, but most of you, since you've married, you've learned things about your spouse that you didn't even, you didn't know when you, before you got married, right? You've learned a lot about your spouse and you learned a lot quickly in the honeymoon period, which I like to call the adjustment period. Which sounds more like a chiropractic appointment, but that's what it is. It's kind of painful. Um. You've learned things about your spouse that you love and you've learned things about your spouse that drive you absolutely crazy. You both have aged and changed and uh, your wedding pictures show it. But it's important for your spouse to know that you're still in it for the long haul, okay? That you're gonna keep your promise just like Christ keeps his promise to us. His covenant love, his chesed, his loving kindness is everlasting, and so should ours be for our spouse. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much just for uh, these people here this morning. Thank you so much for their patient ears. Oh, what a privilege it is to take just 45 minutes out of our week here and and spend it in your word. Looking at your design for marriage, this is a, a message that we need. It's a message that our culture needs. And, uh Remind us as we go through this series that marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's something to hold high in honor, like Hebrews 13 says. And um, What an amazing thought it is to think that uh, you knew everything about us beforehand and still entered into a covenant relationship with us. And I pray that you just help us to uh, model that in our own relationships and... Uh, Help us to live that out. Um, Lord, for those of us who have experienced a broken marriage here today, maybe even an abortion since that's the subject this week, remind them, Lord, of your, your forgiveness and your grace. Remind them that you can raise a man from the dead and you can raise a marriage from the dead as well and nothing is impossible with you and for those who believe. For those who are doing well, Lord, right now, um, in their marriage. Uh, help us to guard our hearts. May we never be so proud to think that our marriages could never fall apart like others, but to rely on your grace day after day to keep our marriages pure, to keep them healthy, to keep them vital and refreshing and fun. And God, we just pray that you continue to bless our marriages and our homes, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.